This morning's message is entitled, The Calling of God's People, and we're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. This is the next sermon in a series that we started last fall, God's Story, Our Story, where we are attempting every week to see and discover how in the midst of every story in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is ultimately one story. It's only ultimately one grand story week after week that God is telling. And here, God gives us, first through Jeremiah, then us this morning, what I consider one of the seminal passages concerning the calling of God's people. The historical context of Jeremiah chapter 29 is this. 500 years before Jesus was born, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, captured exiles from Jerusalem, destroying Jerusalem and taking the leaders of Jerusalem from their homes and into the wicked, secular, godless city of Babylon. And what they do here in Jeremiah chapter 29 is to decipher and figure out how do we live? How do we live as exiles in a foreign land? There are camped out on the east side of Babylon, a, the area which is called the Kavar Canal, because they had bought into the lie from their prophets and their teachers that don't worry, don't go into the wicked city of Babylon because God will soon rescue you. And God says, not so fast. Actually, I have called you not to stay on the east side of Babylon, but I've called you to go in. And Jeremiah chapter 29 is not just the calling for the people of God then, it remains today, the calling of the people of God. If somebody was to become a Christian and ask me, how should I live as a Christian? How do I live as a citizen of the kingdom of God? It would be Jeremiah chapter 29, amongst others, that I would point people to in understanding our mission and our calling as the people of God. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says to all those that I carried into Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, let me stop you right there. Jerusalem, all throughout the Bible, is symbolic for the city of God. Babylon, throughout the Bible, even through Revelation, is symbolic of the city of man. And that's what makes Jeremiah chapter 29 fascinating. God is pitting up against each other the city of God and the city of man, Jerusalem and Babylon. And then there are a head-on collision of how the people of God are to respond. The city of God is now moving into the city of man. Don't miss that. In God bringing his people from Jerusalem to Babylon through exile. Verse 5, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. 
Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me, come to me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banish you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And the grass withers and the flower continues to fade. But the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. It's fine that you believe what you believe, but please keep it to yourself. This is the creed of our culture. Believe what you believe, fine, but please just keep it to yourself. You see, what the people of God have always wrestled with from their founding, the people of God being called out in the Old Testament, the church being founded in the New Testament, have always wrestled with, what do I do with my beliefs? How do I live out this life, this Christian life? And the one thing that those that have lived faithfully, the one thing that we have seen throughout history is it is when the people of God say, no, I will not keep my beliefs to myself, but I will allow my personal beliefs to be made manifest publicly is when the church has been at its best. You see, the people of God, whether it's here in Jeremiah chapter 29 or here today living in South Florida, have always been a people that have wrestled, how do we live in a culture and society that is hostile to what I believe? The people of God have always wrestled with, how are we to exist and move and live in a world and a culture that is contrary to the convictions and the beliefs of the kingdom? But whatever the situation has been, it has always been the faithful remnant of God. Here in Jeremiah chapter 29 or here today at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, that it's been the remnant that when they are called by God, move in and advance the kingdom and shape the culture in which they exist. So what can we learn today by the calling of the people of God back in Jeremiah chapter 29 for our calling as gospel-centered, culture-shaping Christians today. The first thing that we see that's worth noting here in Jeremiah chapter 29 is the calling of the people of God to be in the world. We are called to be in the world. God says in verse 5, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. God is saying, Babylon, yes, this wicked, pagan, secular city, I want it to be your home. No more retreating to the east side of town. No more retreating to the outskirts of Babylon. I want you to move in. 
I want you to buy real estate and trade commerce. I want you to invest. I want you to work. I want you to raise families. I want you to be engaged in every sphere of society, socially, economically, politically. I want you to be fully engaged in this culture. You see, we have plenty of examples throughout church history, both good and bad, of how the church has existed or attempted to exist in the world. And unfortunately, there's been too many examples of how Christians have refused to engage in the culture and answer this call of Jeremiah chapter 29 to live in the world. And for far too long, we have plenty of examples of Christians living on the outskirts of culture, resisting culture, isolating themselves from culture, and maybe even condemning culture. You see, whether it's here in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, or here today, we have always been called to be, what, exiles. Exiles living in a foreign land. Not retreating from the culture, but moving in. The New Testament calls exiles resident aliens. That we reside in this world, but as aliens, as foreigners, recognizing that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven, But here in Jeremiah chapter 29, it is the people of the city of God being called to move in to the midst of the people of the city of man. Not withdrawing from culture, not isolating from culture. We don't have time to unpack this fully today, but to learn more and to discover more about this calling of the Christian to be culture-shaping in their time and in the city in which they exist, I encourage you to buy a book by, called Culture Making by a Christian sociologist, Andy Crouch, that helps us unpack historically the good, the bad, the evil, the good ways and the bad ways in which Christians have faithfully engaged their culture throughout church history. But the bottom line is this. God is calling not only his people in chapter 29, but calling you today to move in to engage, to not isolate yourself from culture, but to move in, to be a faithful expression, a demonstration community, to bring the city of God into the midst of the city of man, to exist and to live as resident aliens, as exiles. We are called to live and to be in the world. But the second thing we see here in this passage is that we are not only called to be in the world, but we are called to not be of the world. And this is where it gets hard. And this is where it gets complicated. Because God clearly tells the exiles, move in, trade, be a part of what's happening in Babylon. Yes, that wicked, evil, secular, godless city of Babylon. But then in verse 10, he says something that throws them a curveball. In verse 10, he says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come and fulfill my good promise to you back to this place. You see, what God wants to remind his people in chapter 29 and remind us today, yes, move in. Yes, be in the world. But live as someone who understands that this is not your ultimate destination. But this is hard, isn't it? It would have been easier for God to say, either move in and assimilate and embrace their values and embrace their culture and embrace their principles, or fully disengage 
and don't talk to them and don't engage and don't shape and don't minister at all. Stay on the east side on the Kavar Canal. But God is doing what seems to be impossible. Be in the world, but not of the world. But you see, this is what the people of God have been doing from the very beginning. It's what theologians call living in the already, but not yet. Living in the world, but not of the world. And saying every day you wake up that I will move into the world and I will exist in this cultural moment but I exist as one who lives for another world. You see, that's what the message of chapter 29 is. Move in, buy houses, trade commerce, raise your families, send them to school. But always remember that this is not your ultimate destination. That one day, your ultimate home, the city of God, will be made a reality, and that is your ultimate destination. And what Jeremiah chapter 29 is calling every believer to live and embrace this tension of in the world, but not of the world. It's what we know to be an ambassador, that we represent the values and the principles and the virtues and the ideals of another kingdom. And so I want to ask you practically, when you wake up on Monday morning, do you understand that you are an ambassador of the king? How in the world does your life and your work, your finances, the way you raise your family, the way you treat your neighbor, the way you serve your city and your world, how does it reflect the values and the principles of the city of God in the midst of the city of man? Would your neighbor, would your colleague, would your friends, would your family look at your life and say, yes, they are an ambassador for the King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen to me. If you are redeemed this morning, you are employed. If you are redeemed, you are employed. Employed by who? Employed by the king. There is not an option for the children of God, both young and old, to be able to say that my beliefs do not affect my life and its actions. My beliefs, although deeply personal, can never remain private. You see, the people of God have always been called to live as the city of God in the midst of the city of man, declaring to the world that the city of God is not only a future promise, but it's a current reality. We are to declare in word and deed that the city of God has already arrived through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And although Jesus is gone and ascended to heaven, he has left his church behind This is what Jesus declares in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you are to be salt of the earth and light of the world, a city on a hill. You see, the people of God have always been called to be a city in the midst of another city. It is the alternate city bearing witness to the lordship and salvation of Jesus Christ. That's why here at Coral Ridge, we talk so much about having a biblical worldview, that your beliefs should shape every facet of your life, young and old, bringing the mind of Christ to every sphere of culture, that the people of God are to shape every sphere and every facet of culture and society so that every 
heart, every square inch of God's creation would reflect the city of God and not the city of man. You've been employed and you've been commissioned if you've been redeemed, employed and commissioned by the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we are called to live in the world, but called to not live of the world. But for what purpose? What is the end that God has in mind? That's our third and final point. To love and to pray sacrificially. Look at verse 7. God says in his letter to the exiles, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. For when they prosper, that wicked, secular, godless city of Babylon... When they prosper, you will prosper. The words there, peace and prosperity, in verse 7, in Hebrew is the word, one word, shalom. That is such a robust and powerful word. We don't have a single word like that in our English vocabulary. So depending on the translation of Jeremiah chapter 29, you'll see a variety of words there in verse 7. But it's one word. It's shalom. Shalom for the people of God was the full cosmic flourishing in every facet, full spiritual and physical and economic flourishing for all people. It was what they had in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which was lost. And the people of God from Genesis chapter 3 onward were always called to seek one thing, shalom. Full flourishing. It's what Jesus refers to in John chapter 10, that they might have life and have it to the full. The fullness of life that was lost in the garden, recaptured through the redemption of Jesus and his people. The shalom of all people. But this was nothing new to the people of God. As I said, all throughout the Old Testament, you can see... uh, them declaring and seeking after this one thing shalom but I'm sure they were pretty amazed that one that day when they received this letter because it's one thing to seek the shalom the peace and prosperity of your own people the people of God but God is calling them to do something that seems impossible seek the shalom of your enemy there's only one place In the Old Testament, where the people of God are called to seek the shalom of the enemy, it's here in Jeremiah chapter 29. It's why this passage is so seminal to us understanding and important to us understanding our calling. It's one thing to seek the shalom of our friends. It's one thing to seek the shalom of people that are just like us. It's one thing to seek the shalom of our church. It's a whole other thing to seek the shalom of people like the Babylonians. To seek the shalom of the enemy of God, these people that killed our mothers and fathers, these people that blaspheme God, these people that don't have an ideology like us, you're calling me to seek their shalom? And God says, absolutely. But although the people of God may have been surprised in Jeremiah chapter 29, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, you should not be surprised. Because after all, this is the message of the gospel. 
You see, it is precisely the message of Jesus Christ that he left his home in heaven and became an exile. He moved into a foreign land. He moved into the city of man. And he died for his friends? No. He died for his enemies. For in fact, the scriptures tell us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that while we were the enemies of God, Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus did not seek the shalom of his friends. He seek the shalom of you and me, those that were at one time enemies of God. And it is the good news of Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ alone that would motivate you and me to live and to love and to serve sacrificially as the people of God have always been called to live and to love and to serve so that both through deed and through word, through demonstration and through the proclamation of the gospel, we would be able to fulfill this calling to be in the world but not of the world and to seek the peace and prosperity of all people even for the enemy of God. It is the power of the cross alone that we see a savior laying down his life for his enemy. It's the only thing that will empower you today to fulfill this ancient calling of the people of God, to shape the culture to which you have been carried into exile, to shape it to look more like the kingdom of God and less like the kingdom of this world so that generations later, our children and our grandchildren might walk through the streets of South Florida and say, surely the people of God were in this place. This is our calling, motivated and fueled by the gospel of God. This past week, I had the privilege of interviewing Ronnie Basus, who's a ministry leader in Beirut, Lebanon. Ronnie Basus leads a ministry both through One Hope and through his own ministry called New Heights. Ronnie Basus is a Beirut, uh, a native of Beirut, and as you know, it was less than two weeks ago that Beirut experienced utter tra- tragedy leaving hundreds dead, thousands injured, and tens of thousands misplaced without work, without homes, or without food. And as I was talking to Ronnie and helping to bring awareness to the devastation in Beirut and the surrounding areas, I asked him in conclusion, Ronnie, can you give me a little perspective of what it's like a little perspective of what it's like to do ministry right now in Beirut. And his answer floored me. This is exactly what he said. He said, Pastor, I do not want your people to be sorry for me. We are so blessed, so blessed. An explosion just went off. I am so blessed to have witnessed God's protection, so blessed that God has chosen us to join him in what he is doing in the lives of thousands of people. God has elected us, pastor, for something that we do not deserve, to be a part of the kingdom work of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are beyond blessed and beyond honored to have the privilege 
and joining him to make all things new. Blessed, honored, privileged to suffer for the kingdom. We get annoyed when our internet goes out. And this man says, I count it a privilege to be a part of God's kingdom work. Oh, would God raise up a church and a generation that says, yes, I count it the highest privilege in life, in both victory and in suffering, that I would answer the call of God, regardless of your stage of life, regardless of your profession, to be not only redeemed, but employed by the king. Wherever I go and wherever I might be found, if you're not a Christian this morning, and maybe all of this is new to you, maybe you're listening at home and you've never made that decision to follow the king, that you can't say this morning that you're employed because you've never been redeemed. Today is the day. And the same power that transformed the world 2,000 years ago can be the same power that transforms your life today. Would you surrender your life to Jesus? Surrender your life so that you might be empowered by the power that turned this world upside down. Power of the cross. Maybe you are a Christian this morning, but you've become complacent and apathetic towards your calling. May this be a day of revival and renewal in your lives and in your home that you say, yes, I've been redeemed and now I am employed and commissioned on behalf of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to live in the world but not of the world, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I've been called to and brought into exile. May we live and learn love and exist and serve in such a way as a church and as a people of God that we would gain such influence that the people of this city and of this region and ultimately this world might be able to say, I don't agree necessarily with everything that they believe at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, but I want to know more about it. I want to know more about this God that you serve and of this Savior that you call the King. A scholar remarking on the Christian movement over the last 2,000 years said, I shudder to think what our world would look like if over the last 2,000 years the multitudes of Christians had not answered the call to be the city of God in the midst of the city of man. I shudder to think as well. Brothers and sisters, we stand on the shoulders of giants who have gone before us who have answered the call to be a gospel-centered, culture-shaping Christian for this generation and for generations to come.